0: Was that powerful or what? But is it true? And we're just saying, I'll shout from the rooftops, God, that I am yours. But are we really? Is it true? How do we know that? How can we make that kind of claim? How can we sing that kind of song with with such boldness and confidence and such energy and enthusiasm? Well, the reason is because the Bible, God's holy word, has declared that truth to us. That through our faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross 2,000 years again, our lives, our eternity, has been radically changed forever and no longer do we have a religious relationship with God. Now, we have a personal relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're his. John 1.12, yet to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Not denomination members, not church members, children. We are his. Bible. But is it really God's word? Or as many believe, is it man's myth? I started talking about that a couple of weeks ago, and today we're going to get into this in earnest. Is the Bible God's word or isn't it? Is it his divinely inspired word or is it just a bunch of manuscripts that were written by a bunch of authors, many good intentions, some who were charlatans, over many years of time. You know, the Bible says some pretty amazing things about itself. We talked about that last time. It says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. If I could just communicate that truth to you in a way that makes it real in your life and impactful, it probably would be the greatest thing that I've done in my entire ministry. I know that to be true. I know that when I read the Bible, and I read a lot of books, and I research a lot, but none of them, have the same impact on me as the Bible. When I read the Bible, it's alive. It's God speaking to me. It's God giving me direction. It's God giving me encouragement. Stella and I were having dinner with one of our city leaders and his wife a few weeks ago. And as inevitably it was when you're around us, the talk got around to the Bible and got around to God. And I started talking about the Bible and he started asking questions about the Bible. And and I, I started going off. And after a while, he just, he just said, stop. He said, he said, I just saw you switch into a gear that I've never seen before. When you started talking about the Bible, he said, you, you came alive. You, you were someplace else. And that's because I believe with all my heart that's true. Of itself, the Bible also declares that it is alive. It's powerful because, 2 Timothy 3, 16, it is God-breathed. In other words, it's the inspired Word of God. It wasn't that a bunch of authors just wrote some manuscripts. They wrote what God, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, led them to write. He didn't dictate it. He allowed them creativity in, in their literary form and, and, and penning their own words. But God inspired the thoughts of His Holy Word, of the Bible. We saw also last time that America's still in tune with that idea. A 2013, just this year, this is an ancient history here, Barna, a a group like Gallup and and like Pew Foundation, Barna did a poll of Americans to find out what they thought about the Bible today. And we saw that 88% of Americans own a Bible. And that 80% of them are in agreement with those two verses that we just saw, that it is a sacred book. It's just not another book. It is a sacred book. 61% say that they wish they read the Bible more. Maybe you're part of that 61% and all you got to do is open it up. We also saw from the same poll that 77% of Americans believe that America is in a moral decay, a state of moral decay. 25% blame that on corporate greed and, and corruption. 29% blame that on the media and and the the unholy and the the immoral influence of the media in our life. But 32% declared that the reason America is in moral decay is because we don't read the Bible like we used to read the Bible. That's pretty strong. Now, in this series... I want to remind you that I am not going to be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is the holy word of God. not going to be able to do it. Why? Because God has not given us those tools. See, because Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He could have readily made it that he proved himself beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he proved that the Bible was his inspired word beyond a shadow of a doubt. God could have proved all of that. But then, what value would there have been in that? We'd have just been a bunch of cookie-cutter people. See, God has given every man, every woman who has ever lived the choice of free will. He has given every person the free choice to either embrace him or reject him, to believe in his word or to reject his word. And because he's given us free will, We cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt his existence, nor can we prove that the Bible is his divinely inspired word. However, what we do hope to accomplish during this particular series is to demonstrate to you that for those of us who believe that the Bible is active and living and alive and that it is God-breathed, we do not base that faith on blind faith. We don't just put our hands over our eyes and say, I don't care what everyone else is saying. I'm going to believe it just because I'm going to believe it. The truth of the matter is, although we can't prove it absolutely certain, there is so much evidence that supports the Bible's claims about what it says about itself. And that's the fun we're going to have. That's the journey we're going to take. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to use an acrostic that says MAPS. And that stands for Manuscripts, Archaeology, Prophecy, and Supplemental Information. Those are the different areas we're going to look at to demonstrate the fact that we are not exercising blind faith when we put our belief and faith in the Bible as God's holy word. Today we're going to start with that first one, Manuscripts. Now I want to forewarn you, so please listen to what I'm about to say. This is going to be the most academic of all the sessions we're going to have together. You're going to have to put your your, uh, intellect hat on. This is going to be kind of like going back to school a little bit, but I'm going to show you the importance of it in just a minute. Now we're going to get on to the other things in weeks to come, and you're going to go, wow, ooh, cool, didn't know that. But you've got to have this foundation today, okay? Manuscripts. Of the Bible as a manuscript, people say it's ancient It's unreliable. Therefore, they attack it many ways. Let's go with the ancient idea. Is the Bible ancient? Of course it is. Do you understand that the Bible is not just a a continuous book that that was written by one person? It's a collection of 66 ancient manuscripts. Written by 40 some different authors that span a period of 1,500 years. The latest book that we have was written in about 90 AD. Therefore, it's about 1923 years ago. I would categorize that as ancient, wouldn't you? Now, because it's ancient, it comes under a lot of criticism. A lot of questions. People will say, since we have no original manuscripts, how can we... You say, wait a minute, Pastor. Stop, Stop a minute. What do you mean we have no original manuscripts? You, you mean Paul wrote all these New Testament letters and, and we don't have one original document? No, we don't. You mean that, that, that Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, we don't have one original document? No. We don't have any original documents. And so therefore, people say, how can we be sure that we have today, what we have today really represents what the authors wrote? Another question is, since the printing press wasn't invented until the 1500s, how can we be sure the previous hand-copied documents are accurate? If people were doing this by hand, we, we all know mistakes that human beings make. How can we be sure that those are accurate copies? Someone else might say, how do we know that the subsequent copies weren't altered to fit the preferences of the scribe who was doing the copy or to fit the philosophy of the church in that day? And this is a a criticism and an allegation that many people make and many other religions make about Christianity. Islam, they'll say that you should read the Bible, but when they speak of the Bible, they say that the Bible has been corrupted by people who have altered what it originally said. How do we know that that's not true? People will say, how do we know that the 66 manuscripts that compose what we call our Bible today are really the inspired Word of God? Now, remember, we saw last time that 1 Peter 3.15 says to every believer, everyone who's trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, every one of us need to be prepared to give an answer for why we believe what we believe. Now, here's what your answer is going to be. People are going to say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? How, do you, how can you be so sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? Our answer is going to be because the Bible says. Well, how do you know that if, if you give your life up and you serve you Christ and you give all this time and all this money and, and all this energy to the cause of Christ, that it's going to result in anything for you? Because the Bible says... How do you know that there's life after this life? How do you know that this doesn't just end at all and you go into a state of, uh, of just non-existence? Because the Bible says. But yet they're gonna come back with these questions and say, well, since we don't have an original document, how are we sure that, that what's there is what the author even wrote in the first place? All right, well, Herbie, why don't you get up and talk to us about that for a bit? Give us the answer to that one. Well, you know, uh, okay, uh, well, I, I, how, how the printing press wasn't invented until the 1500s. How do we know that those hand-copied things haven't been really, really degenerated over time? Armando, we'll let you field that one. Now, all of you would be petrified if I called your name. But we're going to give you the opportunity to understand how to answer those questions. Let's start with a counter question. How do we know that any ancient document is accurate? Now understand this, that our culture, our world philosophy, our academic institutions, our form of government, our judicial system, has all been influenced by the writings of many ancient teachers and authors. People, like you ever hear of a guy named Homer who wrote a little collection called The Iliad and The Odyssey? Anybody hear of that? Well, that's taught in our schools, in our high schools, in our our colleges. You're required to read the Iliad and and sometimes the Odyssey, many people are. Well, do you know that we don't even know when Homer lived? We speculate it was between 900 and 850 B.C., but we don't know when he lived. Then there's Julius Caesar. Ever hear of that guy? He wrote a collection called The Gallic Wars, talking about his, his conquest of Brittany. Plato, Aristotle. Their philosophies have greatly shaped Western civilization as we know it. Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, Euripides, a Greek historian, Herodotus, another Greek historian, Flavius Josephus, a Hebrew historian that was not favorable to Christianity. All of these have written works that are completely embraced by the academic world today, taught in our institutions, and have impacted our form of government, our form of law, and our civilizations. But how do we know that any of those are accurate? We don't have any originals of any of those either. Field of Academica uses three criteria to establish the authenticity and accuracy of any ancient manuscript. The first is, when was the original manuscript written and what what is the date of the oldest handwritten copy that we have today? When was the original written and what do we have today to compare it to? What's the oldest one that we have that would be the closest to that document? Then they ask, how many handwritten copies of the document exist today? How many copies do we have to compare to each other? And the third criteria is, do the different copies we have today agree with each other in text, and grammar, in substance, and in facts? In other words, when you compare these different copies that we have of these documents, do they agree with each other? Are there all kinds of mistakes and all kinds of, uh, of uh, disputing information in them? That's the three criteria that they use. And that's the criteria they use to establish the works of Plato and Aristotle and Julius Caesar and Homer and why they embrace them and accept them and teach them and have allowed them to impact our lives and civilization. Now, let's look at some of them. Homer the Iliad, again, we're suspecting that that was written somewhere around 900 B.C. The earliest copy of that that we have Comes from about 400 BC. That's a span of 500 years from the original document to the earliest copy that we have. And of that, we actually have 643 documents to compare and contrast. And that's one of the reasons that it is so accepted today. Take Caesar's Gallic Wars that we talked about. Caesar uh, wrote that sometime between 144 BC because that's his lifespan. That means the earliest copy that we have of that is 900 A.D. That's a thousand year span between when it was written and the earliest copy we have. And there are ten copies by which we base its authenticity. Plato, 427 to 347 B.C. The earliest copy we have of his writings is 900 A.D. That's 1,200 years span between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have, and we have seven copies by which to authenticate what he wrote. Aristotle, 480 to 425 BC, the earliest copy we have is 1,180. That's 1,400 years between the time it was originally done to the earliest copy we have, and we have 49 copies to compare and contrast and and ascertain its authenticity. Herodotus, this Greek historian, 480 to 425 B.C., again, 900 A.D., the earliest copy we have, 1,300 years span, and we have eight copies. That's all. One more, Euripides, that other Greek historian and and, writer, 480 to 406 B.C., the earliest copy we have of that is 1,100 A.D., 1,500-year span. Now, mind you, the entire Bible was written over a 1,500-year span. It was 1,500-year span from the original writings of this to the earliest copy we have, and we have a grand total of nine copies to authenticate it. I told you it was going to be academic, but listen. All of those are universally embraced and accepted as authoritative and accurate by academic society today. No one's going to dispute that. They're going to teach it. They're going to tell you it's accurate. It's the real teachings of Homer. It's the real teachings of Plato. It's the real writings of Caesar. They're going to tell you that you can take it to the bank based on their academic criteria. Now, how about the Bible? Let's just take the New Testament right now because that's the day we're living in. The New Testament... Those manuscripts that comprise the New Testament were written between 50 and 90 A.D. The earliest copy we have of those documents is 130 A.D. That's a 40 years span. People were still alive when those copies were circulated. And we have not seven, not eight, not nine, we have twenty. 4,000 copies to compare and contrast and see how everything went. I think that's pretty good, don't you? It's ancient, you bet it is. F.J.A. Hort, who was a co-author of the New Testament original Greek, he says this, of Bible being compared to all the works that we readily embrace of antiquity, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests the texts of the new testament stand absolutely and unapproachably alone among the ancient prose writers. in other words if you're going to accept plato if you're going to accept aristotle if you're going to accept euripides if you're going to accept caesar then you have got to accept the bible as an ancient manuscript its authenticity and its accuracy because there is so much more evidence that of its authenticity and accuracy than any other ancient manuscript in history. That speaks of the Bible. Now, but they say, but okay, maybe that's so, but it's unreliable because the Bible is full of mistakes. Well, when they've compared all of these different copies, they have discovered there are mistakes. Anywhere from 150 to 200,000 mistakes. I know that's kind of startling, that's setting in right now. 200,000 mistakes in the Bible? That's a lot of mistakes, Pastor. Now, I'm going to let you wrestle with that thought for just a second. When being hand-copied from one copy to another copy... That work was done by a professionally trained group of people called scribes. That was their job. They were trained to do it, and that was their job. To take this copy and make another copy by handwriting it. Now, how diligent were those professionals who were hand-copying these copies? Well, they had a lot of checks and balance systems in place to make sure that they were very accurate. One of those systems went kind of like this. When copying one of the Bible manuscripts, they would count all the number of letters in the original document they were copying. And then they would find the middle letter of that document. When they were completed and they were finishing copying that document, they would examine their copy and they would count the letters and they would find the middle letter. If in that process they discovered that there weren't as many letters in their document or there were too many letters in their document, and if that middle letter wasn't the same, they completely destroyed the copy they just made and started all over again. Now, just from a human standpoint, don't you think they'd be real careful? I mean, if they knew that if they made one mistake just in this one area, and there were other areas, that if the letters didn't match up, then the weeks it took them to copy, the months it took them to copy, maybe the year it took them to copy that, had to be burned and thrown away, and they had to start all over again. I'm going to guess they were pretty careful about that. And keep in mind that when copying copies of the biblical manuscripts, these scribes truly believed that they were copying the God-breathed, inspired word of God. In fact, they had such reverence for those manuscripts that history tells us that oftentimes when they came to writing any of the derivative of God's name, Yahweh, Adonai, Yeshua, that they would actually stop before writing the name, go wash their hands, go through a purifying ceremony, take a special pen, and write the name of God. That's how diligent they were. But how good were they? What does history say about how accurate they actually were, even with these checks and balances? Well, up until very recently, when I say very recently, I'll tell you the last 66 years. The earliest copy that we had of the Old Testament portion of the Bible dated back to 826 A.D. That's the earliest copy we had, even though the Old Testament was written B.C. That's 800 years after the life of Jesus. That's the earliest copy we had. However, in 1947, all of that changed. In 1947... An Arab Bedouin and a couple of his cousins were doing some spelunking. They were doing some cave exploring in the Dead Sea area of Palestine. And they came across in this one cave all these jars that were sealed, all these pottery jars tall. And they opened a couple of them up and they found out that there were, there were scrolls, there were written papyrus scrolls inside those jars. Now, they weren't educated men. And so they thought, well, you know, maybe somebody, some tourists will want to buy this. So they, they took them to the market, and they took these ancient scrolls, and they just kind of hung them out there in the sun and everything. Well, pretty soon it caught the attention of some learned archaeologist. And they came down there, and they started examining those scrolls, and they were blown away. Because what they had actually found were biblical manuscripts. Now get this. At that point in history the earliest copies we had of the Old Testament dated to 826 A.D. But with that discovery, we made a thousand-year leap. For they found that these documents went back to 250 B.C. Now we're comparing documents from 250 B.C., to 826 A.D., and we're comparing these documents to see how accurate they are, to whether the letters matched up, and the middle letter, and all this stuff we're talking about that the scribes were diligent in doing. And what was the determination? Well, they found some mistakes. For example, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8. In the 826 A.D. version, the verse said, Pour down righteousness. But in the 250 B.C. version, it said, rain down righteousness. Oh, no, a mistake in the Bible. That's a mistake. That, that's one of the 150 to 200,000 mistakes. Now, I ask you, does that change your understanding of that passage? I mean, is it so confusing that one says pour down righteousness, the other one says rain down right? We don't get, oh, no, we can't depend on the Bible. There's mistakes in the Bible. Listen to this. When all this comparison was done, what we've discovered over a long period of time, very careful analysis of these ancient manuscripts, is that the Old Testament has a 95% agreement with all, over 14,000 copies. The New Testament has a 99.5 percent agreement among some 20 plus thousand documents. The majority of the mistakes that critics claim are nothing more than what we would call today as simple typos. Maybe world spelled W-R-L-D instead of W-O-R-L-D. Maybe "words" spelled W-O-D instead of W-O-R-D. The majority of the mistakes, just simple typos, that really don't change the meaning of the document whatsoever. Now, there are other challenges that we'll look at as we continue this journey that we're starting today. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who's the former head of the British Museum, of the biblical manuscripts say this, The interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the Bible may be regarded as finely Established. In other words, he said this. He's saying, listen, when you pick up your Bible on May 5th, 2013, and you read it, when you're reading the Old Testament, you have a 95% guarantee that what you are reading are the exactly the words that were originally penned. That means when you pick up your New Testament this afternoon and you read in your New Testament, you have a ninety nine point five percent guarantee that the words you are reading are the very words that were penned up to two thousand years ago. See what that means is that it's reliable. Is, is, it, is it unreliable? Forget about it. That means that when Jesus declares in Matthew six thirty three seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. In other words, when Jesus declares that we need to sell out, that we need to go all in for the kingdom of Christ and that if we do that, God is gonna provide all those things that we would spend our life pursuing that we really need, that means that when you read that challenge, you're not reading the philosophy of some man, you're not reading the philosophy of some church or some scribe or some denomination, you are reading the very words of Jesus Christ. That means for those of you who are hurting today and you're in life trial, when you see Jesus quoted in Matthew 13, 5, saying, I will never leave you, neither will I forsake you. That means that it's just not a hope. It's just not a pithy maxim. It's just not some some crutch that you can lean on today emotionally and spiritually. It means that the words you are reading, you have a 99.5% guarantee that that is exactly Jesus' promise to you today. That means that when we read what John, one of the original disciples, wrote in his biography of Jesus, John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus saying, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. You can take a 99.5% guarantee that that is exactly Jesus' promise to every single one of us here today. That promise means that I don't care what kind of life you lived. I don't care what you think about yourself. I don't care what other people say about you from the perspective of God. He's saying this, listen, I want every one of you to spend eternity with me. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins, just like he did the person in front of you and, and back of you and next to you. It's ancient. But take this to the bank. Purely from an ancient manuscript perspective, it is the most authenticated and accurate ancient manuscript in the history of all mankind. And you are reading the words that we claim are the inspired words of God. Now, are they? Well, that's a different subject for a different day. Right now, our deacons, our ushers are going to take their places, and we're going to celebrate communion. Now, why do we celebrate communion? Because in the Bible, Jesus commanded us to. He gathered with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, and he instituted this amazing ceremony that we call communion. And it has a purpose to it. It's just not a ceremony for fun. It's not a ceremony to to quench our appetites, give us a little snack before we leave. (laughs) It's got purpose to it. It's divinely inspired. It's divinely ordained. And it reminds us the truth that we just looked, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever will believe in him will never perish but have eternal life. Gentlemen, come on forward and let's begin to distribute the elements. Please first take a cracker then put it on your lap. Take a, a, one of the cups of juice and hold that and then pass the tray on to your neighbor. Let's all hold this until we've all received. Now, as we're distributing these elements and we're about to observe this ancient ceremony together that still has relevance for every one of us today. The Bible says... With a 99.5% accuracy that before we take this, we need to examine ourselves. The Bible says that don't do this unworthily. Don't do this casually. It says first, if you're a believer, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, first, examine your soul, examine your heart. And if there's any unconfessed sin then you need to follow the instructions of the Bible in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And right now, you just need to spend some time with Christ. And you need to restore that relationship. But just as importantly, and maybe more importantly, maybe you're here today. Maybe you're a guest of one of our, our regular attenders. Or maybe you're something's happened in your life and that has caused you to, to start a search for a relationship with God. It all starts at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, a true relationship with God. And you're here today, and maybe you're trying to do your best in life, and you're trying to live a good enough life that someday when you stand before God, you hope that he's going to be pleased, and and he's going to welcome you into his kingdom. Well, I'm so glad that you're here today because you're giving us an opportunity to be honest, lovingly honest with you and tell you that that's not going to work. In fact, the Bible declares with a 99.5% accuracy rate in the book of Revelation that God will never allow anything that is unpure to enter his holy kingdom. And anyone who will be honest with me, as I'm honest about myself, if you'll be honest of yourself, you have to admit you're not impure. You've not got it all right. You've not done it right every time. You've not always treated people with love and compassion and sensitivity and mercy and grace. You've not always obeyed your parents. You've not always obeyed the voice of God. You've done things you shouldn't have done. you thought things you shouldn't have thought. Now because all of us are in that exact state, we can't go to heaven. And there's nothing we can do to change that state. We can't ever take it back. We can't undo it. But that's why God sent Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus Christ to undo what we can't undo. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice on the cross. And the reason Jesus gave his life was so that I don't have to die eternally, so that you don't have to die eternally. But it's not an automatic gift, it's a gift we have to receive. Ephesians 2 8 9 says, For by grace are you saved. Listen to this now, through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Right now, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, before we take this communion, God wants to give you that exact opportunity. And all you have to do to receive eternal forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed, of every sin you will ever commit in the future, all you have to do is to trust what God has told you to do. And he said this, Romans chapter 10, verse eight and nine, that if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God hath raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made into salvation, and with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. Right now, is God calling you to do that? You've never trusted him before You've never asked him for the gift before. And right now, you sense that he's leading you to do exactly that. Then why don't you do it right now? Just ask him. Humble yourself and pray. Maybe something like this, God. I get it now. I'll never be good enough to enter heaven. That's why you sent Jesus, who was good enough. And that's why he willingly died on the cross. So that He could establish a bridge for me to return to you through his sacrifice on the cross. So today, God, I'm transferring my confidence off of my own goodness. And today, with my mouth, I confess Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that, God, you did raise him from the dead. And that my faith in him will grant me eternal life with you. So today, Jesus, I claim you as my Savior. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Be my Savior. The Bible says, 1 John 5, 13, these things I write unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And how do we know? Because of what we're holding right now because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he passed it to his disciples. He says, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, Jesus took the cup and he passed it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Listen, the Bible is God's word. We've just scratched the surface of the evidence. I hope you'll return each week so that you can have confidence in the book that you believe, in the book that you're living your life by that it is the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to praise the Lord again in a moment. Moms, remember, if you haven't signed up for the Mother's Day brunch, do that. Don't forget, as you leave, to, to leave your gifts to the Lord, your tithes, your offering, your missions, giving. Those who can stay when we finish singing, please help us with the transition of the chairs. But let's stand. And on the authority of God's word, let's praise him one more time. Let's shout from the rooftops.